Morning. Good to see all of you. Well, we are in the midst of a riveting narrative from the Old Testament. I don't know, maybe you guys wouldn't say it, but I would say this is a riveting narrative. The book of Esther. So good narratives have conflict. And we have seen our fair share of conflict already in the first four chapters of Esther. We had a queen whose name is Vashti defy the king Ahasuerus who then deposed Vashti and ventured into the ex- an extensive search for a new queen, which resulted in Esther being crowned. Now Esther's cousin Mordecai, who has functioned like her father, overheard a plan to kill King Ahasuerus. Additionally, King Ahasuerus has a right-hand man whose name is Haman, who is enraged with Mordecai because he was unwilling to bow down before him or to honor him. Haman then set out on a mission to kill all of the Jews in Persia. And this has resulted in deep mourning within the Jewish people. Last week, Esther had arrived at the point where she determined to go into the king to plead for or with him for uh, her people's safety, knowing that this could result in her death. And we read the statement last week that she said, if I perish, I perish. But she's compelled to seek the salvation of her people, to do everything that she is able to do in her own strength so that their lives might be saved or spared. So Esther going into the king's inner court then is where we begin today in chapter 5. So let's read Esther chapter 5 as we get going. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king... And if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. 
And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for the book of Esther. Thank you for the fact that we can go to this story that's thousands years prior, and we can find hints and whispers of the gospel. We can, we can see grace. We can see our need for grace as sinners. And I pray that we would be able to flesh these things out this morning and that you would massage the gospel and grace into our hearts so that our faith in Jesus would be built. Jesus is who we need. Every single one of us in absolute need of Jesus this morning. And so I pray that you would please come meet us, draw us, help us to believe the gospel for the first time or for the thousandth time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, here's what we're going to do today. Okay, we're going to walk through a summary of the story. I'm just going to give a little bit of a summary. Then we're going to observe three themes, resurrection, grace, and God's quiet providence. And then we're going to look at Haman's dissatisfaction and Esther's patience and draw these things out. So maybe we don't feel this as we're reading the story, but as Esther enters into the inner court and she faces the king, this is when the music would slow down in the movie and the tension would be running high. What is going to happen to this woman who is showing bravery, who is approaching the king who could easily kill her? And so we maybe would scoot to the edge of our seat, bite our lip, and hold our breath as we wait to hear the king's response to this woman coming in front of him. And what we find is Ahasuerus extends the golden scepter. So we can begin breathing again, sitting back in our seat. The story can go on. She's not going to be killed. And for a dramatic effect, here Esther comes and touches the tip of the golden scepter. And Ahasuerus asks Esther, what is it that you want? And we get the sense that he's in a bit of a generous mood because immediately he states his willingness to give Esther half of the kingdom. Now Esther in her reply reports that she would like to provide a feast for the king and his buddy Haman. So Haman is brought in and they enjoy the feast together. Now there's a lot of white space as to what goes on at that meal. What did they talk about? What happened during the meal? We don't know a lot of what happened. 
But at the end of it, King Ahasuerus re-ups. And he asks Esther her, what her request is, and he offers to her, again, the half of his kingdom. And so then what we read is that Esther's request is that the two men return for another feast to come back the next day to do this all over again. And we read of Haman. It says, he went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Haman was feeling good. He was feeling good about himself until he saw Mordecai, the man who would not honor him. Now it says, Haman restrained himself and he returned home to his wife where he reported a mix of his glory and his seething anger at Mordecai. And as he and his wife and his friends, as they listened to him tell what he was feeling inside of himself, they determined that Haman needed to be able to enjoy the good things in his life. And the only way for that to happen was for Mordecai to be killed. So they set about to build a gallows upon which they planned for Mordecai to die. So let's try and mine out some nuggets from this story. First of all, the whole of the Bible is a story that has at its root resurrection, primarily the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' physical resurrection is a picture of what happens to those, to anyone who believes in Jesus, those who trust in him. And this is a reality that occurs both physically, so one day we will all die, and those trusting in Jesus will be resurrected. So this is a physical reality, but, but it's also a spiritual reality, something that takes effect here and now in this world as well. We move from being dead in sin to being alive in Jesus. Now, throughout the Bible, we see hints of resurrection. We get a picture of it here in chapter 5 of Esther. Now, at the end of chapter 4, she stated, If I perish, I perish. She knew she could easily die. She was prepared for that reality. She knew she was as good as dead. But then, as she walks in, the king extends to her the golden scepter. In a way, she is brought back from death. She was resurrected, in a sense. And notice how, how part of the reason I want to drive this home and say, how do we see this here? is the third day language that we get in this section. So, so there's that phrase, on the third day. Which when, whenever we hear that phrase biblically, we should think Jesus' resurrection. Right? right? So there, there's even these small ways in which the hints are happening thousands of years prior. And, and this is hinting towards the ultimate resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. It is a physical example. The resurrection is a physical example in this story that points to a greater 
supernatural, miraculous resurrection that will ultimately meet our need. Okay, secondly then, I want to touch on grace here in chapter 5. So we talk here at Center Church about having a grace-based culture. Okay, everything that we do, we want grace to be seeping out of it. So we want to proactively ensure that we are not motivating people out of shame or out of duty. So when we invite you into serving here at Center Church, the motivation for that is not be a good church person, okay? The motivation for serving others is because we understand Jesus has first served us. We love others because he has first loved us. That, that's our motivation. Not guilt, not obligation. So we never want to coerce somebody. Because this is not the way of Jesus. The only way to true lasting change occurs in us is through grace, through Jesus touching us, through Jesus transforming us. And, and this oftentimes takes a lot of time. Grace is all over the Bible, but it's oftentimes less clear than the Old Testament. But we get a profound picture of grace here in chapter 5. Esther, as she is entering into the inner court, she won favor in the king's sight. Now, we can simply read this as words that are describing a physical reality in this story. It's just the story being communicated. But I would contend we should always be reading this through a spiritual lens. That's how we read the Bible. So the idea of winning favor is shouting grace. Because grace is definitionally undeserved favor. That's what grace is. It's undeserved favor. So now Esther is coming to the king, and in so doing, she's breaking a law. That's what Esther's doing. She's breaking the law, a law that would get the average person killed. But she wins favor. What does she do to win favor? The text provides us no reason whatsoever. She didn't do anything in that moment. Nothing stated explicitly. Just that she won favor. This is a great picture of Jesus' grace to us. We have sinned. We have broken God's law in a way that should and would get us killed. And through Jesus, he extends the golden scepter. He extends grace and favor to us. And the call then for us is simply to receive it. Not to earn it, but to receive it. It's a gift that's given to us. And, and this is why the gospel is oftentimes offensive, right? Because we want to merit it. We want to prove we're deserving of that. And we can't. It's not what grace is. We just have to receive it. We've got to acknowledge we need help. We're in trouble. We can't save ourselves. And we need this gift to be given to us. We can't work hard enough to earn it or merit it. Okay, so that's grace Picture of grace here. Third, then, let's look at some examples of God's quiet providence. 
So I didn't mention this last week, but the mere fact that Mordecai is unwilling to bow down to Haman suggests there must be someone, something else he's bowing down to. Otherwise, why not just do it, right? So, so that's inferring this idea that there's at least an awareness of God here. Furthermore, we see God's hand at work in the fact that Esther is extended the golden scepter. So she knew full well this action could lead to her death. But in order for Israel to be saved through Esther, this is how it must play out. So her life was spared, and this speaks to God's hand at work behind the scenes. He's moving in ways we can't understand. Lastly, the kindness of the king as well. King Ahasuerus is seen to be harsh at other times. He was quick to agree to the destruction of the Jewish people. He didn't hesitate to get rid of people he didn't like, including, remember, his own wife. God seems to be, maybe oftentimes to us, uninvolved. And maybe in this story, and yet when we peer closely, there's many things that are occurring throughout this story that are shouting God's awareness, God's involvement in the details How else could this story unravel in the way that it does? And the reason we're highlighting this weekly is because we need to know, we need to be reminded God is not uncaring about our lives. God cares about our circumstances. He loves you. He knows what's going on. He wants what is best for you more than you do. It's just that his priorities maybe don't always meet our priorities or his timing doesn't meet the timing we think is best. This is a good segue into... Haman's dissatisfaction. So we read in the story that Haman went from joyful and glad of heart after taking part in the feast that was put on by Esther to immediately being filled with wrath. So, so there's an abrupt turn that's happening here within Haman. The text is emphasizing this as well, just in the way that it's written. Notice it says, joyful and glad of heart, but, right? So it's supposed to be stark. This was a man in one of the highest positions within Persia. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He had access to so much, but it wasn't enough for him. After he has this overwhelming disgust and angst regarding Mordecai, he beckons his wife and friends. And and then notice what he does at this point when he gathers them around him. He says, He recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. 
So he's telling them, and he's trying to tell himself how he's important and how that is seen in his life. And then he goes on right after this to comment on how he was invited to this feast with the king and the queen, and then how he's going to be invited to another one the next day as well. But then he says, all this is worth nothing to me. This is really helpful for us, really instructive to us. What Haman had just done as he was sitting with his friends and his wife is he had pulled out his resume. That's what he had done. He listed all of these good things he possessed or he had experienced or had been given to him. But he needed just this one more thing in order to be able to enjoy all those other good things. This is such a helpful cautionary tale for us. Living in the West, we have been privy to many good things. To many good things. Maybe the better way to say this is too many good things. So many possessions that we forget that we have them. So much good food. Comforts abound. Luxury is rampant. And I can say that even living in Fridley, Minnesota. Most people wouldn't think that about Fridley, but that's true here as well. And what this leads us into is the mindset of a little bit more and then I'll be content. It's the carrot out in front of the rabbit. The best summary of this is that I've heard is by John Rockefeller, who was considered the wealthiest person in the world during his life in the 18 and 1900s. When asked how much money was enough for him, his response was just one more dollar, or at another time he said, just a little bit more. And isn't that true for many of us? How much is enough? just a little bit more. It's all a big lie. Haman's dissatisfaction is a warning to us. There is no lasting contentment found in created or material things. He wanted to kill Mordecai. If that happened his dissatisfaction would have quickly returned. This is just how we are. We cannot find what we are looking for in the things of this world. We should laugh. We should enjoy those good things. But we were made for something much bigger than stuff. We were made for something much bigger than us. The reality is we could ascertain the approval of the most important people in the world just like Haman had, and yet we would still get perturbed by some no-name individual. The things of this world are flimsy. They can't hold up. And yet, what we've got to understand in the midst of this story is that Haman doesn't feel any of this. 
he feels powerful at this moment. He feels like he can convince the king to kill Mordecai. He feels like he can dictate pretty much whatever he wants in life. None of what he's feeling feels flimsy or uncertain to him. And this is pride. And this is something we are familiar with as well. There are things that we want. There are things that we are chasing in our own lives. And whatever those things are, they are not given to us in this world so that we might worship those things. They are given to us so that our worship would be directed at Jesus. These good gifts are given to us so that we might see the goodness of God. And that in, in that, it would drive us to worship Jesus. Not things, not ourselves. So whatever it is in life, there's this call for us to not let whatever that thing is for you to steal anything from Jesus. It should only multiply and increase and compound our affection and our love for Jesus. Okay, last concept I want to look at here is Esther's patience. When she gets in front of the king and has garnered his favor, how easy would it be in that moment for her to just make her request? We don't get Esther's ultimate request this week. It's almost a, it's a bit of a cliffhanger for us in the way that we're going through the book of Esther. She simply asked for an opportunity to throw another feast for these men. I think her patience is fascinating here. If that were us, we would probably be concerned that we would miss the moment. If we didn't just say it, if we didn't just make our request, that was our chance, and so we have to make the most of it. We see a marked contrast here between Haman and Esther. Haman is not patient. He impulsively makes a decision that leads to the building of a gallows. He makes a ton of assumptions. His action is brash, foolish, and ill-advised. And for us, in a culture that's become fixated on instant access, immediate answers, and prompt service, we've become conditioned to be impatient. It is normal to be impatient in our culture. But one of the underlying themes that comes through the story of Esther is that beauty comes through patience. Beauty comes through patience. Many good things in life take time. This is why many mature marriages riches, richness as years go by. This is why new Christians aren't supposed to be quickly placed in church leadership. This is why meat marinates overnight. This is apparently why these women underwent a year's worth of beauty treatment before seeing the king. Beauty takes time. Now, if we're honest, we'd have to acknowledge that someone could say Esther made a rash decision to go into the king. Didn't that display impatience 
on her part. And I think this is where we lean on wisdom. We point to the quiet providence of God and also just looking at the circumstances. Haman was driven by anger and pride. Esther was sacrificing her life as she sought the good of others and not herself. So it doesn't seem to be impatient in that way. True beauty, though, is found in sacrificial love. That's where true beauty is found. True beauty is found ultimately in Jesus dying on a cross for us. This leads us into our gospel application. This is about what Jesus has done, not what you need to do. Haman was so close. He thought he wanted to see a man die on a wooden structure. He thought that's what he needed. That's what would give him satisfaction. And in a sense, he was right. But it was the wrong man. He was wrong to think that Mordecai's death would satisfy him. And for us, today, only Jesus' death and resurrection will lead to our true satisfaction. Now, it's a bit odd, maybe, that we would say that the grotesque, brutal act of gruesomely killing an innocent man, a God-man, results in the most beautiful reality this world has ever seen. A bloodied man is beautiful. It's not the first thing that comes to our mind. It takes patience to see this, to understand this reality and how it works itself out. But the beauty is mined out in the fact, at least partially, that Jesus is doing this willingly. Jesus is sacrificing his life out of love. He looks at us. He sees broken people who can't fix themselves, who can't save themselves, and he understands he is our only hope. Jesus is. There's nothing else that can save us from our sin. There's nothing else in this world that can satisfy us. Only Jesus, only his sacrifice, only his love, not anyone else's love or anything else can ultimately satisfy us. This is what Paul writes about in the book of Philippians. We preached on this a number of months ago. He says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be content while I sit in prison and am deprived of what I want or need. I can be content when the world feels like it's going to hell in a handbasket. I can be content when cancer comes. I can be content 
when life sucks. Not because the circumstances are ordered in the way that we would say they should be or we want them to be, but because there's something much bigger than us that provides us satisfaction. And Paul knows the secret is Jesus. He's what we're looking for. You need to hear this. I need to hear this week after week. Because we're going to walk out of here and we're going to be bombarded with all kinds of promises. If you buy this, if you do this, if you feel this, if you consume this, you will find what you're looking for. And the Bible says, no, you won't. Only Jesus will give to you what you're looking for. And this is why today, like every other Sunday, we end up at Jesus. This is where Esther is pointing us. This is where we need to get. As you leave today and you go and enjoy lunch, take some time to consider the importance, the relevance of Jesus' death. Speak to your children about it. Talk with a friend. Think on the beauty of Jesus' love. Think on how Jesus has changed you and how you maybe need to increase, need to trust Jesus increasingly so that the beauty of his love can be seen, experienced through your life as well. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is all. Jesus is everything. And only he will satisfy us.